Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Scripture reading this evening is going to be Hebrews chapter 13, again, verses 7 through 16. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 16. Before we hear the reading of God's Word, let us pray and ask for His grace to receive it with faith and with love and with meekness that we might bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of His glory. Pray with me. Father, the author of Hebrews charges us not to harden our hearts when we hear your voice. So we ask you to grant us the grace we so desperately need to hear and to heed his warning. According to your great mercy, Father, do not hand us over to our sinful desires, but rescue us from them by your Spirit, through your word. Sprinkle clean water on us even now that we might be clean. Give us new hearts to love you and to obey your commands. Fill us with faith and love and a humble hunger for your righteousness, that we might be more and more conformed to the image of our glorious Savior. This we ask in his name and for his name's sake. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 7. This is the very word of God. Remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. Our focus this evening is going to be on that last verse, verse 16 a verse which we were only able to look at briefly last Sunday. Look again, the author writes, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. As we saw last Sunday, the author is in no way suggesting that our good works are sacrifices by which we atone for our sins or, or reconcile ourselves to God. The, the flow of the paragraph makes that impossible. Remember, in the first part of this paragraph, where we spent most of our time last week, the, the author makes it abundantly clear that it is Jesus, once for all, sacrifice of himself upon the cross, that is the one and only sacrifice for sins. There is no alternative sacrifice, and it requires no addition. 
In fact, if we seek to add our sacrifices to his, we forfeit our share in his sacrifice. His sacrifice is exclusive. It is either or. It cannot be both and. As the author said, those who continue to serve the tent, that is, those who, who continue to look to alternative or additional sacrifices, they have no right to eat at his altar. God's grace in Christ is all or nothing. You either rest upon God's grace in Christ alone, or you do not rest upon Christ at all. If you seek to add your works to his grace, you actually cut yourself off from grace. That was Paul's message in his letter to the Galatians. And therefore, it is vital for us to, to recognize that we stand upon Christ's righteousness alone, that we trust his sacrifice exclusively for our salvation. But, while we must not seek to add our sacrifices to his, the author makes it clear here at the end of the paragraph that we must offer up our sacrifices to God, not to atone for our sins, but as an expression of praise and thanksgiving for the atonement that is ours through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are to offer to God our good works. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. As we saw last week, the sacrifices that we offer are the sacrifices of our words and our works. First, we, we offer to God our words, openly acknowledging Him as God, openly giving Him thanks for, and praise that He deserves. And second, we must offer to God our works, seeking to do good as He gives us opportunity with the resources He so generously provides. Such sacrifices are the necessary manifestation of faith in Jesus. Receiving Jesus as King necessarily expresses itself in sacrifices of praise and good works. And this evening, our focus is going to be on those good works. Knowing fully that our good works do not atone for our sin, knowing fully that we are reconciled to God by the blood of Christ alone, we nevertheless still want to ask, what does it mean for us to do good and to share? And in light of all that has transpired the last few weeks in this country, I want to specifically ask that question with reference to race relations in the United States. So first, we're going to very briefly ask, what does it mean to do good generally? And then we are going to ask very specifically, what does it mean to do good in the area of race in the United States today? So first, hopefully briefly, what does it mean to do good generally? I think we may define doing good as seeking to, permit, uh, to protect and promote the well-being of our neighbors, seeking to protect and promote the well-being or the good or the flourishing, whatever word you want to use, of our neighbors. And we can take that definition apart word by word. First, we, we think about who is my neighbor. You probably remember that question. There was a, a young man who came to Jesus and asked that very question. And he asked it why? He asked it for the purpose of delimiting who he was responsible to be neighborly towards. 
And of course, Jesus' answer given in the good parable of the Good Samaritan refused to answer the question, refused to give him the, the parameters by which he might delimit his responsibility, but rather it charged him, go and be a neighbor. Those people whom God has providentially woven into the fabric of your life, be a neighbor to them. And if we look at the whole testimony of Scripture, we know that we are to be especially concerned for those who are most vulnerable, those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, even as the author has told us in this chapter, those who are imprisoned and, and mistreated, strangers who, who have no one to protect them. We are to do good to all, those whom God has woven into the fabric of our life. Now, obviously, we are finite beings. We, we cannot do all good to all people. And so there are levels of, of responsibility. Those who are closest to us are those to whom we are most responsible for. But we are to do good to those who God puts in our path. And having a greater responsibility for our own family and for, for our church family and for those whom God has, has woven most closely to us does not mean we have no responsibility for those who are more distant. It's a different responsibility but it is a responsibility nonetheless. We are to do good, Paul says, as we have opportunity. As he gives us a chance. And we are to do good. What does that mean? If our neighbors, those whom God has, has put into our life, what does it mean to do them good? There are people today who will tell you what they think their good is. And I will tell you boldly, you are not responsible to do good as they define it. The good you are to do is the good that God has defined. He is the one who created this in His image. Good is defined by, by His Word and by His will. And so we are to do good according to God's Word, but that does not mean that we are interested only in spiritual good. God created us with bodies. He, he created us with emotions. Physical and emotional well-being matter too, and they are to be our concern. We are to do good for our neighbors. We are to seek their emotional well-being. We are to seek their physical well-being. We are to seek their spiritual well-being. And we are to promote and protect that well-being. It's both and. We are to, to promote it. We are to, to seek to, to share our resources, the author says, so that we might grant them again a good they might not otherwise have. And we are to protect them when others come against them to violate their good. It is both promoting and protecting. And we do this in all sorts of ways. When you hear that language, you might immediately think, okay, I've got I've to get out there and I've got to be at the, the soup kitchen or I've got to be at the, the shelter. And, and those are good things to do. But I want you to recognize that, that you promote and protect the good of your neighbor in all of the things that you do. The work that you do. No matter what that work is, if you are contributing to the, the, the flourishing of our community and the flourishing of society, then you are promoting and protecting the good. And we need to recognize that it was God's design that we spend half our waking hours at work. And that we spend a good portion of the rest of our day with our family. That's that moral proximity, that, that closeness that we were talking about. Your, your greatest responsibility. But there is a place for special work, for going outside of our ordinary circles, for seeking the good, especially of those who are most at risk. And it is seeking their good. That's an important word. 
We seek to promote and to protect the good of our neighbors. I say it that way because we don't control the outcome. We are not in charge. We, we do not ultimately give the growth. We seek to plant. We seek to water. We seek to do the things that we are able to do. But we seek to do them knowing that God ultimately controls the fruit of the harvest. And so we seek to promote and to protect the good of our neighbors as he gives us opportunity. That's a a, a very broad definition of what it means to do good. Those are the sacrifices that, that God considers pleasing. When we give ourselves to the pursuit of such good works, when we do good at every opportunity, as Paul says it, But if you're like me, when it comes to the question of race, and when you've you've watched the news unfold over the last couple of weeks, and and you've wondered, what specifically can I do? You sometimes are at a loss. Even as we've confessed, you, you recognize that maybe you haven't done enough. You recognize that you have turned a blind eye, that you have turned a deaf ear, that you, that you have chosen not to engage because you weren't quite sure what to do. But then even when that's pointed out to you, and even when you see that, that you have sinned by staying quiet, or that when you've sinned by not standing up, it's still not always clear what to do next. And I don't know how much help I'm going to be tonight. This is something like the blind leading the blind. This is not an area of strength in my life. But I want to suggest to you several things that we can do, several specific things that I have heard over and over again from my brothers and sisters in Christ who happen to be men of color. Several things that they say we can do to promote and to protect the well-being and the, the flourishing of our brothers and sisters in Christ who happen to be a minority in this place. And one of the first things that we can do, it seems simple, but, but it's repeated constantly. One of, the, one of the first things that we can do is learn to listen. And when I say learn to listen, I mean listen to hear, not listen to respond. Listen to understand, not to voice the perspective you already have. Listen to learn. You are listening to respond when you immediately want to point out that that race isn't the only factor in play in a particular instance. Someone tells you that this is a racial situation and you complain that they're playing the race card. That is listening to respond. You are listening to respond when you want to immediately point out that that there are other important issues in our society that deserve our attention. Racism is not the only problem in the United States. There are other problems that, that need to be addressed. And if you are immediately pointing out that there are other problems that need our attention, I'm not saying that's not true, but I'm saying you're not listening to hear. You are listening to respond when you want to divert the attention from the righteousness of the cause to the sin of some of the protesters. Yes, some of the protesters have sinned grossly. And that needs to be addressed. 
but it in no way changes the righteousness of the cause. And we ought to, we ought to feel the pain of those who, who feel that they've been pushed into such actions. If you had a, a child or if you had a, a wife who had been abused relentlessly for year after year after year, when they finally acted out, you would empathize with their pain. Yes, you would want to correct it. Yes, you would want to maybe show them that it's ultimately not in their best interest. But you would weep with them. That's really the second thing that you can do. Not only must you listen, but you must weep. First, first you, you, you must listen. You must listen to them. You, you must show a desire to, to hear the stories of those who are not like you. And again, this is not something that I have done. It's not something that I, I do well. I would say listen to your black friends, but if you're like me, you probably don't have many. I've lived in white communities my whole life. I have some black acquaintances, but I don't have any true black friends. So how do you listen? Well, you can talk to your black acquaintances, and that is a good place to start. But you can also listen on social media. I talked to one friend this week, and he told me that he follows some 200 uh, black people on Twitter because he just wants to know how they are interpreting the events of the news cycle. Not always as tumultuous as present, but nevertheless, he wants to hear. He wants to hear their stories. He wants to see the things they're talking about. He wants to see the things that they are recognizing. And he never responds. He doesn't re respond. He doesn't send them a message. He doesn't try to correct. <laughs> he just listens. You can listen to the news. And again, but, but, but listening to hear, listening to understand. But maybe one of the most important things that you can do is, is to read books and journals and long piece news stories. Not, the, not just the tweets, but find those books that tackle these issues. Read about the history of slavery. Read about the, the history of Reconstruction and, and Jim Crow. Read about the Civil Rights era. Read about how racism has been in this country. Read about how it still is today. Educate yourself. Read. Listen. And listen to hear. And when you've heard, weep with those who weep. Let them know that you are grieved by their story. I know that personally I'm sometimes hesitant to express my grief or, or my anger because if, I, if that's all I do, it feels like virtue signaling. It feels almost counterproductive. And, and let me say, there is a way to express your grief and your anger that is for the benefit of man. Paul, or Jesus, talks about that in, in Matthew chapter 6. Doing righteous deeds to be seen by others. But remember, Jesus doesn't say, therefore, don't do righteous deeds. He says, don't do them to be seen by others. Grieve with people 
because you grieve with them. Hear their stories and let them break your heart. I've only begun to do that recently. I did it more this week. The stories are hard. Listen and weep with those who weep. And then third, begin to examine your own heart. My dad tells the story of meeting with Randy Dabers not long after he moved to Chattanooga to become the pastor of East Ridge Presbyterian Church. I think I was in fourth grade at the time. And he met with with Randy. He's the founding pastor of New City Fellowship, one of the churches in our presbytery that is uh, intentionally seeking to be an interracial community. And as he was as my dad was speaking to Randy about the, the vision and the mission of New City Fellowship, Randy said to him, but of course you're a racist. And my dad was a little taken aback. He was a little shocked. But as he tells that story now, he, begin, he has begun to recognize the truth of what Randy was getting at. And I've seen many pastors this week who have begun to acknowledge the same. I saw at least three different videos posted uh, um, this week on on Facebook, I think they were. Each of them with the confession, I am a racist. Not overt, not an outspoken member of the KKK, nothing like that. But I saw many pastors who were confessing that, that as a white person in the United States today, they have begun to recognize that they have default racist presuppositions and attitudes that that shape the way that they live in the world and interact with people. I have to admit that when I see those videos and when I hear those confessions, I sometimes push back against them. I push back against them because the clear implication of those types of confessions is that you're a racist too, and if you don't recognize it, you're blind. I don't like that. I push against it. Maybe you're pushing against it even now. I'm not telling you you're a racist. But I challenge you to examine your heart. Do you have default presuppositions that define white people as superior to people of color? Do you live out of those presuppositions? Do you believe that the crime rate is higher among blacks because blacks are more prone to commit crime? Do you believe that the poverty rate is higher among blacks because blacks are unwilling to work hard and are inherently lazy? Do you believe that single-family homes are more common among blacks because black people are inherently less faithful to their vows? Do you believe that educational outcomes are lower among blacks because blacks just aren't as smart as whites? Are you more cautious around blacks because you believe Blacks are 
more prone to violence than whites? Do you believe that if black people were just more like you, with your work ethic and your common sense and your values, that they could substantially improve their condition of life? Those are the kind of questions we need to ask ourselves. They're uncomfortable. But each of those beliefs is an expression of racism. And while we may reject them when we hear them clearly articulated, we need to ask ourselves whether they reflect the default unstated presuppositions of our heart, whether or not we have been more shaped by the racist beliefs and influences in our culture than we care to admit. And if you begin to see that there's more racism in your heart than you were aware, more racism in your heart than you would ever want to admit, confess it and repent. What is repentance? It is not just calling a thing sin, but it is turning from it and seeking to put it to death that you might go in a new direction. Renounce the false racist belief that you find in your heart and seek actively to replace them with a gospel knowledge that they are your brothers and sisters created in the image of of God. Examine your own heart. And when you have examined your own heart, fourthly, begin to speak up for justice. I want you to hear me say, you are not guilty because you are white. And you are not guilty because you live in a society that privileges whites. But look again, or listen again, to what the author says in verse 16. He says, do good and share. Share what? Share what you have. Do good by sharing what has been entrusted to you with others. Do good by leveraging what is yours for the good of another. You have been blessed to be a blessing. White privilege does not make you guilty. But not sharing your privilege does. Not using your privilege to speak up for those without a voice or with less of a voice does. That's why it was wrong for, for me to remain silent last Sunday. I'm privileged. We're privileged. I could lead us into worship as if the events out there had no effect because we can pretend they're not going on. We can live in our bubble. That is white privilege. <laughs> not everyone has that choice. Not everyone has that freedom. And we must share what we have for the good of those who are at risk. So let's speak up. Let's speak up in our conversations with, with family and friends. 
Let's speak up when we hear racist jokes and, and racial innuendo. Let us point it out for what it is. Let us, let us identify the, the racist assumptions that are at work in so much of our lives and let us call them what they are. Let us resist racism on social media and other platforms. I have to admit, I don't get social media. I'm not often on social media. It's exhausting as far as I'm concerned. But if you're going to be there, if you're going to interact with people there, interact with them as a disciple of Christ interacting with other image bearers of God. Not only in your personal conversations, not only on social media, but there's a place even for formal protests, formal demonstrations. It's a hard thing to figure out. My daughter participated in some demonstrations in New York this week, and as a dad, I was very, very nervous. Her on the streets of New York. I encouraged her, please go to the peaceful demonstrations. Please don't break the law. But stand up for justice. I've never been to a protest. I will go to a walk for unity tomorrow night, as I said. It'll be my first time at an event like that. I'm not telling you that everybody has to march. But there is a place for that. And that may be something you are called to, something you have the opportunity to do. You can also speak up in the voting booth. Again, how often are our votes controlled almost exclusively by one or two issues? Maybe economic, who's going to raise your taxes? Maybe abortion? Who is going to limit and restrict the right to murder babies in our country? It may be marriage. Who's going to protect marriage as God defines it? Those are all important issues. I would encourage you not to be a one-issue voter and to let this be one of the issues that you consider. You will never find a perfect candidate. There won't be one. But let this at least be one of the issues we weigh when we consider who we want to serve in public office. We must speak up for justice. And then we must begin to seek relationships with black people and other people of color. As I said, I, I haven't done this well don't really know how to do it. Most of the relationships that I have are with people in this church. I have acquaintances outside this church, but not many friends. I've always said that's just the way I'm wired. And to a certain degree, that is true. But I am beginning to recognize that the whiteness of my most inner circle is a problem. That needs to be addressed. One pastor in our presbytery, who is a person of color, used the language of cultivation. 
said, such, such relationships have to be cultivated. And that implies all the hard work that you associate with farming. All the hard work of clearing the ground, of tilling the soil, of planting, watering, tending, all that hard work is what is required. And we must begin to do it. In all these ways, we can begin to do good in the realm of race relations in the United States. But let me say finally that we must add to this the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation that we even made as we entered into worship this morning. The proclamation not just of the personal forgiveness of sins, but of that cosmic redemption that Christ is accomplishing. People who are oppressed need to know that God hates injustice. They need to know that God hates their oppression, that God hates what they are experiencing. And not only do they need to know that God feels their pain and that he hates what they're experiencing, they need to know that he is going to leverage all of his almighty power to put an end to it. They need to know that he will bring an end to injustice. They need to know that he will reign. His kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. People need to know this, and they need to know that there's a place for them in that kingdom, not because they deserve to be there, but because the righteous one became sin for them that they might become the righteousness of God. God, through His Son, has made a place for everyone who repents and believes in the King to share in the coming kingdom. We need to proclaim that gospel. We need to celebrate it when we gather, yes. We need to be reminded of it when we gather, yes. But we need to take it with us when we go. And when we are weeping with those who weep, we need to proclaim to them the hope of this gospel because this gospel is the only true hope. Just last night I watched the movie Just Mercy. The movie is a dramatization of Brian Stevenson's noble effort to free Walter McMillan, I believe his name was, a black man wrongly convicted of murder, wrongly convicted of murdering a white woman and sentenced to die in Alabama. At the end of the movie, Stevenson says, I came out of law school with grand ideas about how to change the world. But I've learned that we can't change the world only with ideas in our minds. We need conviction in our hearts, and conviction comes from hope. This man, referring to Walter, this man taught me how to stay hopeful. I now know, he says, that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Hope allows us to push forward even when justice is distorted by the people in power. It allows us to stand up when they tell us to sit down. And it allows us to speak when they demand we be quiet. I think Stevenson expresses a profound truth. Hope does strengthen us to seek justice. 
It does strengthen us to, to work towards peace, to, to seek the king's shalom when it is violated. John says as much in his first letter. He says, everyone who has this hope, speaking of the hope of the gospel, he says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself, seeks to live purely, seeks to walk in righteousness even here and now. But I wonder if Stevenson's hope is strong enough. I don't know him. I don't know much about him. But I wonder if his hope is strong enough. The story he told took place in the early 90s, nearly a generation ago. I wonder what his hope looks like 30 years later. I wonder what his hope looks like in the aftermath of the events we've seen the last few weeks. I don't know the answer to that question. But I want you to know that the only hope strong enough to renew your strength like eagles. The only hope strong enough to, to motivate you to, to run with endurance the race that has been set before you. The only hope strong enough that you might seek justice with indefatigable energy. The only hope strong enough to do that is the hope of the gospel. If your hope is in what you can accomplish through political means or economic means, that hope will fail you and eventually you will become disillusioned. But if you know that there is a king who will one day put to rights all that is wrong, if you know that your Lord will reign on earth as it is even in heaven forever, and for all generations to come, if you have that hope, you will be free to seek first his kingdom here and now. And so in these six ways, we can seek to do good. We can listen to hear. We can weep with those who weep. We can look into our own hearts to, to see what's there. We can speak up for justice when we see what's out there. We can begin to build new relationships. And we can proclaim the hope of the gospel that sustains and strengthens. And in these ways, we can begin to do good in the realm of race relations in the United States. Obviously, this is not a comprehensive list, and it's certainly not a perfect list. As I said, this is something like the blind leading the blind. So, if you disagree here, you disagree there, I understand. But, do not let your disagreement with some detail of what I've said blind you to the reality of the obligation that God's Word places upon you. The author of Hebrews says, do good and share. And that means do good in your relationships with your black brothers and sisters, your, your brown brothers and sisters, with all those minorities who do not share the privileges of being white in this country. Do good for them and share the resources at your disposal for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Not because such sacrifices 
reconcile you to him. You're already reconciled in Christ by the once for all sacrifice for your sins. But such sacrifices are the expression of that new relationship. And they are the substance of the good life to which you have been saved. It is because you are free in Christ by virtue of his once for all sacrifice to do good works and to do good works for the most vulnerable among us. It's because you are free to do such good works that we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your grace, the grace that has called us out of darkness into light. We thank you for the grace that sets us free to run the race that has been set before us. And we thank you for the grace that opens our eyes to ways in which we have not been running that race well. Father, I thank you for those here and those listening at home who are so far ahead of me on this road. I thank you for the example that they set, and I pray that they would continue to press on, seeking first the kingdom. And I pray for those of us who are lagging behind, Father, that you would convict us of our sins, and that you would stir us up, not that we might do something out of guilt, but that we might recognize the blessing that is ours to be set free, to be an agent of the King's peace in a broken world. Father God, may we with joy say, take our lives and let them be consecrated unto thee. Father, may this be our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.